Good evening and thank you for joining us on Wango Spaces. Today we want to discuss Karen Daniel with the CEO. So we're going to dive deep, especially into the latest 2020 results and see what happened under the hood. I spent a little time just before the call on the 2022 financials. So up to date. If you're not, there's a thread that we did earlier today. So you can check it on our timeline. I can give you a good glimpse on what to expect today. But it's nice to have you here, Vijay. Karibu sana. Yeah, thank you very much. And can you hear me clearly and everything else? Yes, very clearly. Nice to have you. I think I'll start with maybe a soft touch. Maybe you'll start by saying how Khan General is doing generally. How's the new year started from September? That's when your financial year ends. So maybe from October, how's the new financial year going so far? Okay, so thank you, Eric. So in our chairman's statement, we alluded to the fact that we expected that challenging conditions in 2022 would persist into the early part of 2023. And these challenging conditions related to the high levels of inflation, the exchange rate availability, the exchange rate devaluation, and those challenges have continued. So when you ask me, how's the first sort of quarter been? I'd say that some of those difficulties have continued, but I think we've made a lot of progress. And I think that we're very hopeful that we will see improved economic and trading conditions going forward. So I think whereas it has been tough, I think we've made a lot of progress and I think we'll continue to make progress and the opportunity is certainly there, that's for sure. Let's start also by gentle introduction to the company, maybe for someone who's new to understanding Kanjana, maybe you can give a two minutes brief on what the company is all about and the various segments that you have. Sure. And the matter. Okay, so very quickly, we've got five principal business lines. One is the equipment and automotive distribution business. That's our business that deals in two-wheelers, three-wheelers, consumables, generators, forklifts, do and construction equipment, tractors. So that's our equipment distribution business. Then we have a financial services business. That essentially is the financing of two and three-wheelers. And we have a leasing business for our equipment. And that leasing business, we think, offers great potential for the future. We have a real estate business. So we have an investment real estate business. We carry property on an investment basis, which means that we not only carry land banks, but we also carry rental property. And then we have an agricultural business, which is fairly small in Tanzania, which is a poultry operation. And then we have a manufacturing business, which we set up and started production in 2021, September, which is a helmet manufacturing business for the region. And that really relates to our motorcycles, helmets and vests. And that, in a nutshell, are the five principal lines of our business. It's across the region. It's in Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya. We do trade in various other countries throughout the region, including West Africa, but the principal businesses are in Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya. That's a really good introduction. And perhaps you would also maybe later talk about the helmet business in a bit more detail, because that's also one of the future product clients that you have. So maybe to go back, what's the competitive age for the company as a whole? And when you speak to some of your customers, why do they prefer to work with you and not with other that the same? Okay, so I think the principal competitive edge must stem from the quality of the product. And our proposition really is value for money. We try and offer the best value. That doesn't mean we're necessarily the most expensive, but it means that from a customer perspective, we align with the best value. And it's only by aligning with the best value that we can aspire to be the number one or number two in the market. There are a lot of other things that then go into it. There are a number of products that do offer the best value, particularly in our fields where you've got three or four big players in each marketplace. So you really gain the competitive advantage from other areas apart from this sort of value for money sort of proposition. And that is great people, you know, good strategy, 
good execution, good diversity as well. And it's the whole array of strategy that really propels success. But we always aspire to be number one or number two in the market. That's a key driver for us. And we'll only enter a market if we can be number one or number two. So that talks to what we will invest in. You can't become number one or number two if you're not selling a product that can aspire to be number one or number two. And only really the top products can even aspire to do that. And then it has to be supported by a really solid strategy. Definitely. Uh, then dig into the 2022 results, maybe for the listeners, as I said, the financial year ends in September. And then, so they report their earnings in January mostly. And the results this year, I think, came out on 25th or 26th of last month. And they were not very pleasing results, I would say, given the market's reaction to it. Last year, Fangenre was one of the best performing stocks at the NSE. So this year has gotten a bit off to a rough start, maybe because of the results. So maybe we'll dive into the results to give context and a bit of explanation on what happened. So we start with the high level. Revenues growth was around 13% generally, but the sales in Kenya dropped around 5%. Maybe you can give a bit of context to the top line. How was the growth? Where are the component of growth and something like that? Yeah, so if you look into the revenue line, and it's all contained in our financial statements, the reality is Kenya, as you correctly say, dropped last year 5%. So from a turnover of 11 billion, it dropped to about 10.5 billion. Where we saw some very fairly significant growth was in our Tanzania and Uganda operations, which grew 38%. And now Uganda and Tanzania and other markets form 45% of our business. So when you talk about top line growth, I think the top line growth was not unreasonable. What was disappointing was the Kenya drop, and the Kenya drop really resulted from May onwards. That started with the sort of election fever, but then I think what subsequently we realized, it was a little bit more than the election fever. It was the inflationary environment. It was the forex environment. So if you look at the results in total, what you'll find is that our profits dropped 23%. In those results, you can see that there's been a 300 million shilling forex loss and a 139 million shilling demurrage charge. If you add all of that up, and those were two fairly large items, the Forex loss was unrealized. If you add all of that up, I think we probably scrambled through last year, but I would say that the last five to six months, particularly in Kenya, were very challenging. And those challenges are what I've been alluded to in my first sort of comments, and we need to overcome those challenges in order to make sure that we're back on a progressive keel, I'd say. What's the operating environment like outside Kenya that managed to grow around 48%, 48% growth outside Kenya? That's impressive. What's driving that growth? So what's driven that growth is one, in our Tanzania business, we've seen a niche in the motorcycle space. We've seen quite a lot of growth in that space. Now, that's not necessarily an economic driven thing, but it's just an opportunity that arose, which we identified. And we're doing our best right now to try and capitalize on that space, because we think that the motorcycle business is, is a large business in Tanzania, like it is in Kenya. We were a late comer to that business because we didn't have the right product. But now that we've got the right product and we've had it now for a year and a half, we can see that it offers tremendous scope for growth. We have a 95% share in our three-wheeler business in Tanzania. So that business has continued to perform reasonably. There were challenges, but it's a fairly steady business, I'd say. So the real drive in Tanzania was the motorcycle growth. Then when we look at our poultry business, you can see our poultry business grew fairly considerably as well. That's in northern Tanzania. And that was basically on the back of increased production, good pricing, stable supply. So that was a positive. And then when it comes to Uganda, 
again, in our core lines, which are actually not consumer-based, but more equipment-based. We saw a lot of growth in our equipment business, our Cummins business, our Doosan business, our tractor business, and our tire business. So I'll say that those were a really good story. And when I look at Kenya and I look at the equipment lines, I think the growth was reasonable in the equipment lines in spite of the environment. When I look at the consumer lines, particularly the three-wheelers and the other consumables, I'd say they were relatively static. Where the real impact was, frankly, was in the motorcycle business, where we saw, as you've seen from our chairman's statement, probably at one point a 50% drop. Now, that's a very large chunk of our business that has dropped 50%. 72% of our business has dropped 50%. So that's really what we're trying to make up. We have seen a recovery. But having said that, it's a big drop to stomach at one go. What's wrong that drop, if you could dig in a little bit? So there were a couple of big things that caused that drop. The number one thing was the high levels of inflation and the increase in the fuel price. So now what that did was it essentially meant that water utilization dropped from 106 kilometers a day to 83. That essentially was a key driver. Now, that's a very important statistic because it means two things. One is that the border is doing fewer trips, which means that he's doing less, he's making less money. And the second thing it tells you, he's making less money and paying more fuel. So the net result is your costs are slightly higher. And the third thing is related to inflation is when you look at his income and his disposable income based on the fact that food pricing, everything else skyrocketed at the time as well. What you saw was basically a significant drop in the demand for bike. And that was also mirrored on the other side, which was the finance side, where we basically said that this is a high risk and we need to diminish the risk, which meant that basically on the finance side, deposits increased in order to basically diminish the risk of lending. And the net result, when you combine both those factors, the drop in mileage and a tighter financial system, for that particular product. That's what drives a big drop. And that really was the key driver in terms of causing the big drop in the bike business. And what's driving the recovery? As you say, it is happening so far after the elections, kind of. So what we're seeing right now is that uh, the bike kilometers per day is increased to 95 kilometers a day. So that's still below the 106 prior to March. But that is a recovery. So when you look at that recovery, so I'm not going to say that's going to translate in taking demand back to where it was, because it's not. Demand is going to remain relatively constrained in the short run as the market equalizes. So right now, what you have is a scenario where you're doing 95 kilometers a day. You had bikes that were doing 106 kilometers a day before. So what you have is essentially a slightly oversaturated market. And what will now happen is that with the drop in the sales, you'll find that the markets will stabilize and then start picking up again in line with the size of our GDP. And the size of our GDP will relate to the size of other countries' GDP. So eventually, Kenya must grow to be a bigger market than both Uganda and Tanzania. Right now, it's a smaller market than Tanzania, the same size as Uganda, because of these restraints I'm talking about. And eventually what will happen is those restraints will level and the demand will go back to where it should be. So that's really where the waiting game is on the bike business. That's very interesting that uh, we are a bit behind Tanzania and Uganda. And in that sense, it's a very interesting statistic. I wanted to, to perhaps stick into the revenue items. Maybe we could talk a bit about why the equipment business was quite stable and it grew marginally. Because that's to do with the forklifts, the construction equipment and the tractors business. What made it stable during a year when the border business was down? 
Now, what happened last year? If you look at Kenya last year, we still grew at 5.6% or thereabouts, between 5.1% and 5.6%. So the growth was still there in spite of everything that went on. But where we had the damage was in the agricultural sector. So the damage actually was in the agricultural sector. And if you look at the statistics, other sectors grew. Tourism grew. Services grew. All the sectors grew. The one sector that didn't grow and let us down in the last two years because of weather conditions and other things was the agricultural sector where you have negative growth. So right now what we're seeing is that the agricultural sector with better rains is on its way up. And we hope that'll continue. It's not where it should be by any stretch. It's coming off the low base. But if you look at this year, we're expecting the agricultural sector to grow 5.6%. Now, if that happens, then Kenya's mass market, and this is the key point, the mass market is where the struggle was in the last year. Inflation, fuel costs, poor agriculture. That's where the pain point was. And the pain point wasn't in services. It wasn't in construction. This is where the pain point was. So we're hoping that pain point will ease this year and the mass market, which really sustains Kenya's economy, comes back in full force because that's the key thing for Kenya, to be honest. Let's now move down the income statements, down to the profit zone. You talked of the issues around Forex losses of around 301 million. You said they're unrealized. And then so we maybe start with that before we go to the merge. So you can start with that. What happened in the Forex area? Okay, fundamentally, we're an import-based company. And how our business works is that we import product. Basically, that is an exposure in dollars at that point in time. And then what happens is that when, that, when the LCs mature, we convert them into an import loan. And because of the slight shortage of dollars, those import loans were in, in dollars rather than shillings. Normally, we'd have them in shillings, but they were in dollars because there was a slight shortage of dollars during that period. Now, that's an exposure. So when there's a devaluation of the currency, and if you look at the currency, it went from about 11 to 126, 111 to 126 over, over those four or five months. The reality is that exposure on a balance sheet, according to IFRS, needs to be translated as a forex loss. Now, that doesn't mean to say that it's all realized because what effectively happens is you still have the stock, but you can't revalue the stock. So what you essentially do is you basically put up your prices and hope you recover the forex loss a higher gross margin if you can. Now, that's not always possible when that devaluation continues, right, which is what's happened now. So the truth is we need that stability in order to ensure that our pricing is at the right levels. But having said that, we'll keep putting up the prices. The good thing is we have the stock in place. Ultimately, a large proportion of it will not be realized, but there's no question about it that it's an exposure on the business that needs to be accounted for. And when you speak to your club and first, how's the dollar situation? We attended the event yesterday where the central bank governor was meeting this private sector CEOs. And one of the issues that was raised very clearly was the issue of access to dollars and the price at which companies are accessing dollars. So the gap is a bit wide between what the, the rate is being reported by the Bloomberg index and what the manufacturers are saying they're getting it at and they can't be able to get that. Do you feel a similar situation in where you operate in your business? And is there even it happening as it's been said? You know, the reality is that there is a tightness in dollars. We can't run away from that reality. And there is a differential between the bank rate, the bank buying rate, and the selling rate. And the fact is that's because there's higher levels of demand than there is supply. So, you know, that, there's no question that's a challenge for the economy. Certainly for an importer, not necessarily for the economy, but certainly for an importer, that's a challenge. And what I will say is that we've managed to get the dollars that we require. 
Our requirement is not as high as some. I think if you're a fuel boy and you need $30 million a month, or an edible oil boy needing $30 million a month, oh, that, that is more of a challenge. But at our levels of business, we have managed to source the dollars. Yes, yeah, so the price is going up. That's a supply and demand scenario. We hope it stabilizes right, right now. We're in an era of dollar global weakness, right? That should hopefully translate into a more stable dollar in Kenya, so long as we can start having sufficient source of dollars to equate demand and supply. But I think where I'm seeing it right now, we're seeing a little bit more stability because of the dollar weakness globally. But there's no question that until about two weeks ago, it was an era of dollar strength. Now, that was a big challenge for everyone, I think. But the dollar restriction in the marketplace still exists. So if you're looking for really huge chunks of dollars, it's a challenge to make it available. That's very clear. And maybe moving on to the second item that affected profitability was demarriage charges, which you talk of resulting from the global logistical issues and localization of production. Maybe you can dig a little deeper into that and tell us a bit more about it. So what happened, and that was principally in Tanzania. What happened last year in Tanzania was that the lead time saw a quantum shift when Ukraine was attacked. What that meant was that what was a 30-day lead time went up to a 95-day lead time. So then you're basically saying, it's going to take me 95 days to get my product, right? So therefore, I better budget for 95 days and you order on a 95-day lead time. And the interesting thing is, between March and September, that 30-day lead time went to a 95 to 100-day lead time and then dropped in November back to 30 days. In November and December, it was back to 30 days. But now you've budgeted your ordering based on 90 to 100 days. And it suddenly drops. So all of a sudden, instead of having one consignment coming in, and our consignments are relatively large, because of this continuous drop, you have three consignments landing you at once. And that caused a pileup at the port. And that pileup, we didn't have the capacity to clear at the time. And that's what caused demarrage and storage charges. And those demarrage and storage charges, if you want a punitive charge, Demarrage and storage charges at the port for an importer like us is the most punitive of charges. You can be talking 180 to $200 a day per container. We order 70 to 100 containers a month in Tanzania. So imagine 300 landing at once and you having to deal with that and get them out. It was a huge challenge. We managed it and right now we're back on even keel. But you can imagine the cost of that. And now we've got the infrastructure to be able to deal with that a lot better. So now we have more bonded warehouses. We have relations with customs bonded warehouses, which we didn't have at that time. But now we have it so we could manage it a lot better today. But at that time, it was a big shock to the system and obviously extremely expensive. Very good to hear. I think that is in line with what you're hearing globally about supply chain easing. That's a good thing to hear, at least directly also from you. At this point, I would also want to inform the audience members that if you have questions, you can either DM us, you can request to speak at some point in the next 15 minutes, and then you can also do a third thing, which is just below the pinned switch to type your questions. So we're going to now take you a bit to Watu Holdings. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about that. It's a separate business. Maybe you can give a little bit of flavor on what the, the company is all about and what you're holding in that company is. And I know you established operations in Uganda, Tanzania, and Sierra Leone, and maybe you can tell us a bit of that geographical spread. So we have a 29% stake in Watu Holdings, which we bought in 2017. Essentially, Watu Holdings is a financing business for two and three wheelers. 
We're in fact the largest financier of two and three wheelers in East Africa. We've grown from 2022 to a very dominant position in the marketplace. In some cases, particularly Kenya, maybe too dominant a position, such that we're almost systemic. But basically, we're a dominant player in the financing of two and three wheelers in Uganda, Tanzania, and Kenya. We've now gone into telephones. So now we've got something called Watu Simu, which finances telephones. And whereas we have had a couple of challenges in terms of, as I mentioned in Kenya, some of the inflationary-related pressures on our end consumer, the net result is that we think that Watu has been a very good success story for us and has been a great investment for us, obviously. Great. And maybe you could speak about the geographical spread. How did you get to Sierra Leone and you jumped so many countries in between there? We see Watu as a continental play. We see it as an African continental play. So what we've done is we've seeded Sierra Leone, we've seeded Nigeria, we've seeded DRC now. And what that means is we can test the markets, look at collections, look and see what structures should look like, test mobile money, because we're a cashless business. We receive 180,000 payments a day, and it's all by MPES or mobile money. So the net result is we need to make sure all the systems work. And now what we'll be looking to do is, and fortunately, we took it easy in Nigeria, we took it easy in Sierra Leone, because those markets in the last one year have been basket cases. You look at the depreciation in Sierra Leone, look at the depreciation in Nigeria. They've been crazy. So we're very happy that we've taken it very easy in those markets and conservatively. So we will now start looking at focusing a little bit more on those. This year, our focus is to strengthen our Kenya, Tanzania and Uganda operations, get a bit more of a foothold in DRC, because we see that's going to be a massive market for us. It's within East Africa. So those are going to be the four markets which are going to drive real growth this year, both in motorbikes, three-wheelers, and SEMU phones, as we look and see how we really want to scale up West Africa as well. But the structures are set up, and it's now just a question of pressing the button to get going. All right. And perhaps you could speak a bit about its contribution to net profits. You're saying it was significant. What does that mean? If you look at our net profits last year, Watu generated 600 million, which was a lot of our profit. <laughs> so the reality is it was significant and we don't consolidate Watu, to be honest. So we only take share of profit. So even when you look at our revenue of 19 billion, it excludes our joint ventures and associates, but we take share of profit in our earnings before interest tax, amortization, depreciation. So the reality is that it's a very significant contributor to our bottom line, or it was last year. And that's the beauty about the diversity of our business. At the end of the day, if we go through a challenge in one business, another business can come to the party. And I guess that's probably an advantage over being a very single-focused business. For example, if we were only a motorcycle business in Kenya last year, obviously, given the figures I've just given you, we would have had a very major problem. I think the forex would have been difficult to manage better, but the demurrage costs we should have managed better probably. But the reality is, it is what it is, and we have to take it on the chin. Who are the other shareholders, by the way, in what to credit, what holding? So we invested in a company. We invested in founder shareholders. And there's one founder shareholder who is the majority owner of what to credit. We're the second owner. Uh, and then we've got uh, other associated individuals who are owners of the balance. There are only two principal owners, us and the founding member of what to credit. All right. So perhaps we can also move to discussing a bit about the investment property business and the valuation gain of 112 million last year. So maybe you can speak to that. So what's that all about? So how investment property works is, so if you look at our balance sheet, you'll see that we have an investment property portfolio in the region of 3.5 to 4 billion. 
And that means properties that we're not using ourselves. That's essentially what it means. Those are properties held for investment purposes. If you look at our revenues from those properties, we generated an earnings before interest and tax of 150 million from those investment properties. And that essentially is rental income. So the net result is if you're looking at property businesses generally, you want the revenue from rental incomes, which must be supplemented by the revaluation gains. And that gives you a correct assessment of your return on property. So if you look at that, you've got 150 million shillings of revenue from rental incomes, and you've got 111 million shillings revaluation gain, right? That tells you that your income from your property business, whether it's realized or cash or non-cash, is 253 million, essentially. Now, when you look at 253 million on an investment holding of three and a half to four billion, you know that somewhere your property is not working hard enough. That's what it tells you. But if one's looking at investment property in the truest and realest sense, one has to look at rental income plus revaluation gains. And you've got to see a bit of both, to be honest, to make a property business really work or an investment property business work. It has to be both. You're not going to make the gains just on rental income. You must make the gains on the valuation gains. So it's got, what's got to be looked at in conjunction to really assess the true profitability of that business. And what I'm saying to us right now is that our property business is generating 250 on an asset base of three and a half billion. Probably not quite enough. That's what I'm saying. All right. And now I think we need to discuss this Boda Plus business. Can tell us a bit about how that's going? I think you said you started production in September 2021. That's almost one and a half years or thereabouts. How's that going so far? Yeah, so it's one year and three months. You can see our revenues went from zero to 237 million in one year. So that's, I think, a pretty decent gain. We would have expected to do more, but the reality is I've just explained the motorcycle business dropped 50% in Kenya. What has really helped us is our export business to Uganda, Tanzania, DRC to an extent. And we're looking to expand that export more and more, to be honest, because we think there's a real play there. So we think that what we've seen is one, that we've got a really good product and we've got a really good team manufacturing a really good product. And we've got the variety of products. So we are now globally competitive. And that was the first test case. We needed to be globally competitive in our helmet manufacturing business. And I'm very happy to say that we feel we are globally competitive both from a price point perspective and a quality perspective. So now the real stress is, what we're really not stressed, but the real emphasis is on now just growing volume. So when you look at last year, I think our market share in Kenya will will still be pretty high, around 50%. But the reality is we need to now grow this to the capacity of the East African market. The capacity of the East African market is about 100,000 helmets a month, right? So if we can get that to 60, 70% market share, this will become a very successful business. We're not too far off it. When I say we're not too far off it, we're making good progress towards that goal, but we're not quite there yet. And we hope the Kenya business does pick up so we can pick up the volume here. But we still need to have some big wins in DRC, some big wins in Uganda still, and some in Kenya as well. So working hard, but we're very positive about the prospects. It's something else because I've tried the helmets myself, maybe a, a bit of time to sort of tell people a bit about what makes the helmet special. It's all about quality. If you look at the traditional Chinese helmet that everyone sort of wears in Kenya, especially for the border, if you drop it on the floor with any force, it cracks and it breaks. We, we thought about this and we said, it, that can't be right. We cannot be giving our customers a helmet that's not fit for purpose. 
And what we're telling all the suppliers in the motorcycle industry is that you cannot give your customer an unfit-for-purpose helmet. It's morally irresponsible, right? So if you look at our helmet, you try breaking our helmet. It's impossible to break. And the price point is not that far different. And in fact, we're giving it away. You know, the motorcycle assemblers and sellers are giving away the helmet. We have a responsibility to give away a quality helmet. But it's not fair that we should give away a helmet that doesn't last and doesn't stand the test of an accident. So the net result is that that is the key thing for us. We must be giving proper protection to our customers. And that's the key driver. And we've managed to do that. We've produced a product which is fantastic at the right price. All right. For the listeners, you can check out in our timeline. We have a few pictures of that helmet which you can check out. And where can they find them, by the way, Vijay? You can find them at our showroom. You can find them at any of our dealerships, any of the Honda dealerships. You'll find them at some of the Bajaj dealerships. And you can find them online. If you go into our website, look for a helmet, you can buy it online. You can actually purchase the helmet online. It'll be delivered to you if you want, just to make your life simple. Online is probably the easiest if you're buying one helmet. If you want to buy 100 helmets, pop into the showroom and we'll do a deal for you. All right. Both capital allocation, the dividends, 0.8 last year. Was that sufficient from your end? What are the expectations around that and maybe going forward? When investors? I think given the challenges that we encountered last year, I think the dividend was very fair. You've seen that we invested 1.9 billion in paid up stock, which was way over the top. So now basically we're working hard to liquidate that stock to make sure that we basically balance the balance sheet, so to speak, because as a result of that overhang, the balance sheet became unbalanced. So I think given the profitability and the challenges related there to, and the fact that we consumed a huge amount of working capital cash, which obviously now we're unwinding, we think that's a fair dividend. It would have been remiss of us to be generous on the dividend, to be honest. So we need to be fair to both the shareholders and the company, especially given also the fact that your currency is devalued 15%, and that 15% devaluation means you require 15% more working capital. It's simple mathematics. So the cash is required for the business. And frankly, we need to generate more positive free cash flow. And frankly, the only way we're going to manage that is to become a logistical champion, frankly. So now that the logistics are easing globally, now that the freight costs are easing, it's basically a day one mentality to become a logistical champion. We need to get goods from A to B as cheaply as possible, as quickly as possible in order to minimize our investment. And that's what went a little bit askew last year. So that's the key driver. When we become logistical champions, our business will throw a lot more cash out. And that's the key thing for us right now. What are some of the key markets that you source your products from, the inputs, the products? So the key inputs come from India, and they either come from Pune, which is near Namashiva, or Chennai, which is in southern India. And so those are the biggest, probably one of the largest importers from India and East Africa. Those are the big markets that our product comes from. We also get generators from India because Cummins has a huge manufacturing plant in India. India is probably our biggest source. We also import from Korea, from Europe, from everywhere else, from Japan, our forklifts, our tractors. But India is the biggest market from where we import. I think on that note, it's also good to maybe to discuss some of the partnerships you have. You have very good partnerships with Cummins also, very big manufacturer of engines from the US. So maybe you can speak about some of those partnerships that you have, some of the brands that you work with, so that people can be more aware of car in general. So we've been very fortunate. And I talked earlier about the value proposition. So every one of our partners is the leading partner in value proposition. Whether you look at TVS, which is our two-wheeler supplier, 
You look at Piaggio, which is our three-wheeler supplier. TVS is also our three-wheeler supplier in Tanzania. Whether you look at Cummins, whether you look at MRF, which is our tire supplier, whether you look at Toyota forklifts from Japan, whether you look at Kubota tractors from Japan, whether you look at Doosan construction equipment from Korea, you'll find one common thread amongst all of them. They offer the best value for money in the markets in which we operate. Simple as that. And I can say that virtually hand on heart. <laughs> so the fact of the matter is I do believe we've been very fortunate. Cummins, obviously the Cummins generators, which I didn't because we have a joint venture with Cummins. I did mention it actually. The fact is you look at all those companies, they're leaders in their fields and they're leaders because they offer the best value proposition. Um, so we've been very fortunate. I have to say that we've been very fortunate to accumulate such a great and diversified portfolio of brands and it's taken a long time to do it. But fortunately, we've managed to do it. And then, of course, we have Ingersoll Rand compressors, which also come from various countries, India, Czechoslovakia, the UK, South Africa. So that's another great brand. And as I said, our value for money proposition is probably the number one in the market at the moment. And what makes this big brands trust you? Because I, I, it's impressive that you get such an array of brands trusting you to work with them and they're entrusting you with a driving value or at least driving the visibility of their brand in the local market? What makes them trust you? I think principally our governance. That sounds like a very strange answer. But the reality is that the big brands trust us because we are transparent. Our governance is great. We've got a great board of directors. We follow the best governance practices. We have the CMA guidelines, the CMA regulations. The truth is, unlike a lot of other people who play in our space, our governance is completely transparent. You can see everything just looking at our balance sheet. That's number one. And number two is that we have a number one mentality, right? We're not in the markets to play at number two. We're in the markets to play at number one. We try and adopt. We will only play in a market if we can be number one or number two. So the net result is good governance coupled with a number one mentality and preferably a day one mentality, which is a winning mentality hopefully it gives us a winning equation. And that, that's what our key suppliers and partners trust. On maybe moving a bit beyond that, so speak about the future of the company, the brand. You invested in the EV market, so maybe you can speak about the way that everything is going on around there. So when we look at the future, they're going to be several big plays for us. Number one, as I mentioned earlier, Watu is going to become basically a continental brand. Number two is when I look at our manufacturing business, our helmets, and allied products, we see that as a continental play. Whether we'll achieve that, maybe a bit too early to say, but we see our manufacturing as a continental play. And the third thing is, given the ecosystem we've developed, both in distribution, in finance, we see ourselves as the key driver in the EV play. So we will be launching three-wheelers in the month of April, three-wheelers, V3-wheelers. And you look at our distribution, we have the distribution. We have the customer base. We have the financing. We have the accessories that go with it for the manufacturing side that goes with it. We are very well positioned to be a key driver in the transition from IC engines to EV engines over the next 10 years. And it's ours to win or lose. There are a lot of people entering the space, but no one offers the ecosystem that we currently offer. So that's really going to be ours to win or lose. And that is going to be a key drive for us. We would really like to be a really dominant player in the EV space from a supply perspective, from a finance perspective, and hopefully from a manufacturing perspective, because the EV space should become increasingly locally manufactured. We can make chassis in Kenya. We can make other parts in Kenya. 
So why not make them? We've proved we can be globally competitive. So that's going to be the big play over the next seven to 10 years, I think. The continental play on war to the continental play on manufacturing and the transition and the transformation of IC to EV. And we think that's a big play. And the other final one is probably the transition to solar as well. So we see our Cummins business migrating increasingly into the solar space. So that we basically, because right now, if you look at the order of play in PowerGen, it's KPLC, solar, then Genset. We're perfectly positioned to drive solar in Kenya. There's no factory that should buy our Genset but not install a solar system. And if we can do both, then I think we're on a winning wicket. So again, we can play to the strengths of our ecosystem. Perfect. Once again, I remind the listeners that if you have any questions, you can just DM us or you can request to speak or you can also just type them. I think one listener here called Land Kenya has already typed a question. They're asking, how does Car General handle repairs and what percentage of expenditure do they incur handling after-sales services? And then he also wants some additional insights on the auto services industry might look like in Kenya in the near future with EVs coming along. Okay. So how do we handle repairs? So first of all, Car in General has a Car Gen Tech Up program. What that essentially means is that we train every single mechanic in Kenya that's in the two-wheeler and three-wheeler space, irrespective of the brand. So we've trained 3,000 tech technicians in the last one year. Essentially what that means is that all those Juakali shops you see everywhere repairing two-wheelers and three-wheelers, we make it our mission to train that mechanic not only in terms of how to repair a two-wheeler or three-wheeler, but also in terms of how to run a P&L account. And it's called the Cargen Tech Up Program. So when you ask, how do we repair in Kenya? We repair in every street and every town. So if you look at our motto, it's make customers smile in every street, every town. And we repair literally in every street, every town. So you'll be hard-pressed to find a town where we are not present in one fan manner or form. And more than expense, the more important question, I think, is revenue. Right? What is our revenue from repair business? Because at the end of the day, what we aspire to be is to have what we call a 100% absorption rate. And what that essentially means is that our aftermarket revenues must cover the entire cost of the business. We're not there yet, just now, not across every business. We are in our smaller business at a 100% absorption rate. When you look at our revenues from our repairs, our service sector, on the consumer side, probably $150 million a month. And on the equipment side, we're looking to push that up to around 50 million a month. And if we can do that, I think we'll be in a very strong position across our absorption rate objective. The second part of the question is about EV and the auto market in Kenya. Is Kenya ready? We had Kenjan a few weeks ago. What do you think about how the market looks like? Is it ready for EV charging system? Already we have a lot of disappointments with uh, Kenya Power. Do you see the government ramping up infrastructure in that sector? I think the government will ramp it up, but if they don't ramp it up, we have several sort of private players that will ramp it up. So between Watu and CNG, we've made an investment in an EV company called Arkride. They're looking to ramp up charging infrastructure in Nairobi over the next one year, 200 to 300 charging stations. So I think Kenya is ready for it. I think Nairobi is certainly ready for it. I think the EV space in two wheelers will take a bit more time because I think the technology still has to be perfected. I think on the three-wheeler, the technology is already ready. And we'll see how our launch goes in April. We're very bullish about the three-wheeler space. We think that it could transform very quickly, very quickly. And we're working to see whether we can piece all those pieces together, the charging infrastructure, 
the product quality, the battery quality, the battery aftermarket. So in answer to your question, we think it can transition very quickly. And given the fact that, as you mentioned, Eric, that we have a lot of trust, not only from our suppliers, but also from the marketplace, I think we can certainly change the minds of our consumers and say, right now, the time to move to EVs here, it costs you less, it gives you less headache, and it's green. Although I think right now that's not going to be the big driver from a consumer perspective. The consumer is thinking, where do I make the most money right now? <laughs> but we think we have a very solid proposition to convince the consumer that the EV is a solid economic proposition. There's Tony here who has a question about Forex. How does the availability of USD look like in Tanzania and Uganda? That's three questions. One is about the availability of dollars in Tanzania and Uganda. And then secondly, the contribution of the poultry business and what are the prospects of it going forward? And third, the impact of the increasing cost of production for the poultry business. Okay, those are good questions. Yeah, so really, so if you look at the Forex, Uganda, I think there is no Forex issue, which is surprising. And if you look at Uganda, so you were at the CBK chat yesterday, Eric. If you look at Uganda, it's the only currency in Africa that's really appreciated against the dollar. Uganda, there's no Forex issue. Tanzania, the Forex issue is pretty extreme in the sense that it's not available. It's very tightly controlled. And the reality is that it is a challenge in Tanzania. The great thing is that we're a multinational group. And because we're a multinational group, we're in a much better position to manage all of that. So that, I think, is a risk point, that we need to manage that risk, both in Kenya and in Tanzania, in order to make sure that our business is sustainable. In terms of the poultry business, so if you look at our revenues last year, they jumped from 300 million in 2021 to 630 million in 2022. And if you look at our earnings before interest and tax, our poultry business was 119 million in terms of earnings. Right. So the reality is, again, if you look at return on capital, really good. When you look at prospects, what you've correctly identified is the cost of feed because of the inflationary pressures has gone through the roof. There's no question about that. Can you price that all up? The answer is probably not. So we are looking for some respite. We think the, the allowance to import GMO animal feed will certainly assist. And we think it's important. We hope that we'll have decent harvests, which will reduce the price. And right now, what we've seen globally is the cost of commodities has dropped drastically. Even though Ukraine, as we know, has been given special permission to export some of the core commodities, we hope that commodity pricing will start to ease off. And if that commodity pricing eases off, then I think the prospects for the poultry business are positive, assuming we're able to maintain the quality of our producing stock. All right. And then maybe double-clicking on Uganda. How come Uganda has no forex issues compared to the rest of East Africa? What are they doing differently? One, they have a free-floating exchange rate. So the Ugandan central bank allowed the currency to float. It went from 3,600, 3,500, jumped to almost 4,000. So because they allowed it to free-float, market forces prevailed. And what subsequently happened was that the dollar weakness kicked in, which I was talking about earlier. And that dollar weakness has now translated into a stronger Ugandan shilling. And then, of course, their demand for dollars is not quite as high as Kenya's or Tanzania's, and certainly Kenya's. You look at Tanzania, they're building huge infrastructure. So there's a huge amount of dollars that are required there. You look at Kenya, we heard it yesterday. 30% of our forex requirement is fuel-related, right? When you see that there's been a 60% increase 
in the fuel requirements of Forex, you can see where the shortage has come from. And so even though the import demand dropped 5%, we've seen fuel demand in terms of Forex jump 60%. And that is what's called a dire shortage in the Kenyan market. So again, I'm hoping that it's going to ease off given the dollar weakness, given the fact that people will be more amenable to selling dollars, given the central bank's efforts to buffer supplies from the IMF and the World Bank. Hopefully that'll ease off a bit. But right now, it's still a little bit tight in both Kenya and in Tanzania. Okay. I'm trying to look for questions. It seems that you satisfied most people's questions, I think. I've also exhausted mine in that regard. So I think unless there's any question from the audience, is there anyone in the audience who wants to ask questions? If you do, you can just send a request to speak. By the meantime, Vijay, maybe you can paint a picture for your expectations for FY23. As we said in the chairman's statement, we think FY23 is going to be unpredictable. A lot of it will hinge on us managing these key risks, right? And the key risks are the dollar supplies, as we discussed because that obviously is a critical ingredient to our business. We think we can manage it. We're confident we can manage it, but we need to manage it. There's no question about one thing, and that is demand is there, and demand will increase. So we're very positive about the crop prospects for 2023. We feel we're at the tail end of some of these challenges, like the demurrage and storage in Tanzania, like the massive forex fluctuations. We think Watu is now recovering again in terms of Kenya performance. We think that the poultry feed cost will drop. Look, the opportunities there, we just got to manage these risks more effectively. And then, of course, we've got to basically liquidate the stocking overload. So we're confident we'll be able to do it in TZ because we've virtually already done it. We need to now liquidate the stocking overload in Kenya, which given the tight economic conditions in Kenya for the motorcycle business specifically, will take a little bit more time. So those are the big things we need to manage. So what I would say about this year, there are the opportunities there. There's an opportunity to really grow this year, I think. But we'll need to manage these big items really carefully. These big items are going to be the keynote of our performance. So yes, we feel positive. We hope the central banks of the countries will do the right things. And if they do the right things and are able to source our base raw material, which is dollars, we think we should have a relatively positive performance given the opportunities we're seeing for growth. Right, a few questions come in. One is about the charging network. Is that going to be in, within Nairobi or are you spreading it out to rural areas? And also, has Watu Credit itself gotten a CBK license? Okay, so the charging network is basically going to be rolled out in Nairobi, right? So it's going to be rolled out in Nairobi in the sense that that's going to be the core focus area for the two-wheelers. When it comes to the three-wheelers in April, we'll initially start with Nairobi, but we may start doing test cases in certain towns. And when you look at the three-wheeler business, it's very concentrated along the coastal area, along Kisumu, certain other areas. So we may do some testing in those towns and start rolling out charging infrastructure in those towns. It won't be a full rural charging infrastructure right now. It's still too early. And we want to get Nairobi right first because we think Nairobi is where the biggest market will requirement will be, especially with the cargo segment for two-wheelers and three-wheelers but also for the passenger segment. So Nairobi will be the key focus, but we will certainly be testing in certain towns. In terms of the license, CBK license, the CBK did introduce the license, the requirement for a digital license. The re- reality is that Watu is not a digital lender as such, but we have requested advice on that. And basically, we'll do whatever's necessary 
given the advice it's given. So that's really in a nutshell where we stand. But in terms of the other countries, Uganda and Tanzania, yes, we have the licensing that's required. And about the charging infrastructure, does it include solar being able to power some of these charging stations? Yes, it does. So yes, it does. Exactly. So that's also technology which is work in progress. And it also depends on the rate from KPLC, but because they've talked about giving preferential rates. So the reality is it's all going to be a play. But right now we're too early in the play to determine where it's going to level out. But yes, if you look at India, solar is a key ingredient of the charging station. Two questions here from the audience. One about how the real estate sector is doing, given that you own the whole IOA mega mall. And then secondly, what are your current or near-term efforts to maybe work a bit more on the real estate portfolio to ramp up return? The key thing is this. We know that our real estate is fully rented or more or less fully rented, 90% rented. And that will remain the case this year. So we see the revenues coming in at similar levels, give or take. There will also be slight increments depending on where we're located. So that will continue, we think. In terms of extracting the right level of return in the real estate in the absence of investment gains, real estate investment gains, which we don't foresee happening certainly in the next year on a large scale, we need to either plan a development on that real estate or reduce the size of that real estate. And right now, we're exploring both options. And we'll we'll push ahead with, with whichever option makes more economic sense. Because even now when you're developing real estate, you have to be very careful. What we've seen is developing real estate is actually quite a complex equation because you're banking on your tenants to be successful. If your tenants are not successful, then you have a problem in that real estate. So we've got to be very careful. Real estate is one area we need to be really careful. So we're exploring either a disposal of some of it or a development of some of it, or both. I think both are also possible. So we just need to make sure that we make the right sort of commercial decisions on it. It's a more challenging decision. Real estate is highly complex, and one has to proceed with real caution. Yeah, we've seen a lot of reputation ruined in that business, so we understand you. A question here from Rahim. How does localization of parts of multiple parts affect, how has it affected the water business? Localization. It hasn't really affected the Buddha business in the sense that today 12 parts are manufactured in Kenya in line with the government. We want to get that to 40% local. We would like to get that to 40% local. So it's affected the motorcycle business in the sense that you have to be organized and work with the local manufacturers to manufacture those parts. That is a very important plank. But it really benefited the industry because imagine the jobs we're creating in manufacturing. And imagine the jobs we will create in manufacturing when we get to 40%, which is the key driver. So it's a good thing. And then if we can start exporting these bikes across the region at duty concessions, that makes a lot of sense. Then we can really scale industry in this country. Imagine what scale we could have. You know, there is a very interesting statistic that in 2050, a quarter of the world's population will be in Africa and one third of the world's working population will be in Africa. Now, that tells you that Africa should be the productive basket of the world. That's what it tells you. That is a massive opportunity. And we have a duty to try and make that happen. And you have to do it through manufacturing. Manufacturing is the critical success factor to achieve that. And we have the whole market. We have an East African community. Our helmets today 
We're exporting helmets. It takes two days to get to Uganda. So at the end of the day, it makes a lot of sense. Manufacturing is where it's going to be at. Another question here is about the composition of your debts, the debt portfolio that's driving up the finance costs. How are the debt looking like? So that's it. So I talked about a 1.9 billion investment, right, in real estate, in working capital. And a lot of that leads into debt because that's working capital stocking and therefore that piles up your debt. So that is what we're working really hard to unwind so that we can unwind that debt. And the reality is if we're able to become logistical champions, which I referred to earlier, you'll see that we could run a really successful distribution business with minimal debt and maximum sky. When I say minimal, given our size, minimal and maximum return. And that has to be the holy grail for us. The holy grail for us must be for us to become logistical champions in distribution so that we are producing a lot of revenue on very little investment. And that really is the key for us. And we can do that. We can turn it around. But now that logistics have resolved, we need to start really looking to become much more efficient and turn it around more and more. So that's going to be the real challenge for distribution. That's what distribution's about. Distribution is not about sales, gross profit, margin costs. Distribution is about logistical efficiency. If you're logistically efficient, you'll generate cash. If you're logistically inefficient, like we were last year, you'll consume cash like it's going out of fashion. So that really is the message on that we need to just become logistic champions. Good one. Francis, you have a question? Yes, Eric. I've just remembered that I've seen of late a lot of manufacturers complaining about the tax landscape in Kenya, which has been changing every year on different heads of taxes, including excess duty and VAT and such. I would just like to know whether Jay is worried about a particular change in the tax policy this coming year or something that has just happened recently over the last maybe one or two years that has really affected their business in terms of their tax obligation. Secondly, is my question is on public policy, especially with changing public policy decisions every day in government, especially with a change of regime from the last government to this government. We have seen a lot of public policy decisions just made and a lot of manufacturers have to be ready and not just manufacturers, but also in the other line of businesses. And one of them is the standard gauge railway. I would just like to know whether such decisions has impacted their business in terms of how they are planning for instance, clearance of goods in Mombasa versus clearance of goods in the Nairobi ICD. I'd just like to know, uh, as a manufacturer, are those things concerned or, or are they much of concern to him? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, so the reality is the regulatory regime is a challenge. Uh, and what that means is like we talked about manufacturing earlier on. Basically, if you don't meet the manufacturing standards, then obviously higher duties apply, but there's not enough support for that manufacturing. There's one thing, having a great policy, regulatory policy, but also the other great thing is you have to support it. So for example, the reality is when we were going through this journey of producing 12 parts, most of the manufacturers that we dealt with struggled to find the investment capital to put in the equipment. No, they managed, thankfully, which is why we're in production. But the reality is, we need to look at both sides. So when you have a regulatory regime that is trying to drive a certain policy, we must also look to support that regulatory regime and that policy. You look at places like India, you look at places like the UK, you can apply for loans, grants to support that policy in order to be able to actualize it. Otherwise, it can be very unfair. It can be very unfair. 
to review. And then the other thing is change in the tax regime. As you've read, the KRA imposed tax claim on us, which fortunately we won in the tribunal. KRA is appealed in the high court. And that process is now ongoing. We'll have to see what the outcome is going to be. But our legal advice is that our position is relatively solid. We have to have consistent tax rate. We've done it for 20 years. How can you just wake up overnight and change your policy? And likewise, the fact is now we've basically invested in CKD and everything else. So we've got to stick to the policy. We've got to be consistent. And if we're consistent, then at least the business will avoid any of these big volcanoes that may erupt. And so I think consistency is the key to policy and regime changes. And right now, it's just too unpredictable, which makes investment decisions unpredictable. But hopefully, we'll see a little bit more sanity in that sense. The truth is the government has a budget. It has to raise the money. We have got a hole to fill. And that's a challenge. And the easiest way to do it is tax revenue. So we've got to see both sides, but we need to make sure that we're fair in all respects. I think that's the key thing. And in terms of the other things like gauge railway and the other impositions, so when they first imposed standard gauge railway, if you looked at our accounts, it cost us $220 million in demarrage. That's how serious it was. And again, that imposition was unfair, very unfair, because the ICD here in Nairobi was not ready for it. Right? And more than that, the whole system and infrastructure was not ready for it, particularly if you do things like bikes where you have to register each and every single bike on the KRA system. If that system is not up to it, you're going to pay through your nose, which is exactly what we did. So again, so we've not seen any more of that recently. I think giving the option of Mombasa or Nairobi is helpful because it was pretty silly for us to import by SDR into Nairobi because we're a registered office in Nairobi and then have to send all that product back to Mombasa to sell. That didn't make any sense. So I think right now there's a bit more sanity in all of that. And we just got to be sensible. I think really we just got to be sensible. The SGR, they had to make money on it, had to pay for itself. So they made an unfair imposition on everyone. So we think that right now what we've seen is relatively fair so far. And we hope that it'll remain like that, given the fact that the government has to raise trillions. All right. A question here also from the audience about replacing ice in Mombasa. What's your take on how long it will take for the e-tuk-tuks to take over maybe in Mombasa and then you can have less noise and all that and less pollution? Honestly, I think it can happen pretty quickly, but you have to remember that we have got a lot of petrol engines running in Mombasa and a lot of diesel engines running in Mombasa. Now, those will continue to run because what do you do with them? So at the end of the day, what will happen is that the transition will take time. And we have to be a little bit careful there because you can imagine if we launched e-tuk-tuks in Mombasa, and we've got a great e-tuk-tuk, actually, the Piaggio e-tuk-tuk. No one would want to sit in an ice engine. We would have a very, we'd have a lot of clamor and demand with the e-tuk-tuk, and, and we'd have cause a real problem for our ice engines. So we're going to have to manage that really carefully, I think. So I think we'll do it in pockets. Uh, and make sure pockets become concentrated at a time. And that will also help us in terms of the charging, because it means we can concentrate the charging. So that's how I see it panning out. And in terms of how long it can happen, the reality is there will be a phase out, but we're pretty confident that we can make very serious progress very quickly. So we estimate that by 2030, in terms of e-tuk-tuks and e-bikes, we should be looking at between 40 and 50%.
And what's a typical life of a Tuk? Typical life is four years of a Tuk Tuk and a motorcycle. And then e Tuk Tuk, would that be longer or shorter? So the battery will last four to five years. And that's the key thing for an e Tuk Tuk. And then at the end of that four to five years, you have to replace the battery. So the reality is that it's a similar length of time. Lots of questions coming in. Franklin wants to ask a question. Franklin? Hi, Eric. And hi, hi Vijay. Hi, Franklin. My name is Frank Orohio. I'm a financial analyst. Yeah. And one of the things that I've noted is that between 2021, year over year uh, profit, we saw a very sharp change when it comes to the change in the stock price. And this is represented by our 79% change. Over the years in the past, we have seen that whenever we have a sharp rise in terms of the stock price, we also experience a very sharp decline in the stock price. I'm not so sure if he's able to comment on impacting share prices though. But let me make a comment, Eric. Just allow me to finish. And there's a change of 179% in one year in the Kenyan market. That is a very sharp change. And people will be asking maybe what is the business doing to maintain that momentum, either in the short term or even in the long term. Because people might be anticipating or even investors will be anticipating maybe in the financial year 2023 or even in the financial year 2024, there might be a very sharp decline in that stock price. Okay, yeah, no, the point is, Frank, yeah, good one. So you're a financial analyst. And the reality is you probably also recognize that our supply is fairly tight. But the most important thing is not even that. The most important thing is the fundamentals of the business. And the reality is you have to ask yourself, what is the fair value of the stock? Now, when you see our real estate portfolio of 3.54 billion, when you see our investment in Watu generating that kind of profit, when you see a bit does of 2 billion, one has to ask, what should the stock price be? Uh, and if you just do a really simple calculation on just a bit there, just take a bit there, 2 billion, and take a conservative, don't even take an aggressive, take an, a, a conservative six times a bit there, you should be looking at 12 billion. And then you have to decide whether your stock price is reflective of that. So that's where I'd leave that answer, Frank. I'm not sure that answers your question, but the reality is where we... Given that performance and given that really simple metric, one would almost conclude that we're still undervalued. <laughs> but the most important thing is, and if we really want to drive stock price growth, we've got to generate more free cash flow and pay it out as a dividend. And that's where logistical championships, being a logistical champion becomes critical, really critical. And that's where hitting the right volumes becomes critical. And that's where hitting forex stability becomes really important. So when you look at it right now, I'd say that there's a lot more in our control, except for the forex, which is outside our control. And we really need to work hard to make sure that we hit those key milestones in order to basically throw out enough free cash flow to declare a satisfactory dividend. But the real thing is right now is to make sure that we downsize. Apart from becoming a logistical champion, we have to downsize the quantity of that stock that we built up in the short run. And so that's going to be a really critical driver for us. But otherwise, you look at intrinsic value, yes, we're undervalued. If you look at free cash flow, we're not as undervalued, let me put it that way.
So we need to really look at throwing out more free cash flow, which when you look at the size of business we are, if we're logistically efficient and completely streamlined, which is where we need to get to, we should be a lot more cash generative, which will allow us to pay a higher dividend, which will really propel the stock to the right level of price. And allow me to ask the second question. You have mentioned a number of times the dividends that the Kaijeno has paid the shareholders. And I would like to understand, or even I would like to know maybe the total dividend payout for the financial year 2022 compared to the earnings. So if you look at the earnings, it's 680 million and we're paying out 80 million. But the reality is look at what our consumption is. Look at what we've consumed in cash. Look at what, you know, so we need to make sure that we really follow solid fundamentals. What I've seen in business is that you can't stray from fundamentals. I think last year we strayed from fundamentals a little bit and look at how we've seen this build up in stock. Likewise, we can be generous with dividend, but that's straying from fundamentals. We need to be fair to the shareholder and we need to be fair for the company. And given what we went through last year, I think we've got a good compromise from that perspective. So we've got to bear both in mind and we've got to take a longer term view. At the end of the day, yes, this year may be a drop, but we've got to work on sticking to solid fundamentals in order to generate a lot more free cash flow. That really is where we need to head. Free cash flow equals high dividend. Simple as that. I think that may answer a question that I saw on the timeline. Someone wondered why you, the dividend was 3.2 in 2021 and why it's 0.8 in 2022. I'll just clarify. That's 3.2 is before a bonus. So it's 160 versus 0.8. So it's, that's really where it comes from. All right. Someone is asking... What happened to the Alfa Romeo brand you used to sell? Any chance of it coming back? So the Alfa Romeo brand was our first great lesson. When we were rebuilding this business, in 1999, we secured the Alfa Romeo brand. And what we saw was there was a great mark, a beautiful brand, great products. But the market size for the Alfa Romeo was too small. And BMWs found the same. Mercedes, because it's coupled with a much bigger business, does quite well and does well with the truck side of the business. But it's too small a business, given the addressable market, to really look after your customer and to make money. That is the bottom line. So even now, when you look at it, you look at BMW sales, you look at Mercedes sales, they're under pressure, right? And that pressure would mean that it would be very difficult to look after customers and do enough volume to make money in a brand like Alfa Romeo. So in answer to your question, it wouldn't be able to fit in our stable. It might be able to fit in a stable of cars, right? For example, CFAO could take on Alfa Romeo because they got 20 other brands and it will just feed off the same infrastructure. Would they do it? Probably not because they'd never hit the right level of volume. Simple as that. And even BMW right now, you look at BMW in Kenya, it's one of the great marks. But at the end of the day, has it succeeded? It will do well. The volume is too low. You look at Porsche, same thing. The volumes are too low. That's really the big problem with the Kenyan market right now. There's a lot of questions. I think you generate quite a bit of buzz online. Are you considering being Tesla's agent in Kenya? I think Tesla's a brilliant brand, but the answer is no. What we've seen is that we wouldn't want to venture into the motor vehicle space. It's a space where you need much larger infrastructure, Although Tesla actually is pretty efficient in that sense. But, but again, it's a volume game. Motor vehicles is a volume game. And in order to play in that space, 
you need to be convinced you're going to do volume and you need to make the investments in infrastructure to do that volume. We're happy in the space that we're in. And we're happy growing Watu. We're happy growing helmets and manufacturing. And we're happy growing our distribution business, which we think has great scope for growth. We think that we're well positioned to, to really scale up as a business. Maybe our final questions, a few of the final questions for you, Vijay. How is the relationship, especially with the government and supplying them and paying? And then something else I seriously noted in your financials, you say that no one customer is more than 5% of your volumes in terms of revenues. That's a very curious statement. I just wanted to know, is that a deliberate thing that you do so that you're not overexposed to particular defaults or it just so happens? No, I think it's a very important statistic. The reality is it talks to the diversity of our business. And in terms of government, I think our government business specifically is under 1% of our total revenues. So we can't really comment on the payment cycle of government because we don't really deal with them. The reality is I think it's a really important statistic. We've got serious diversity of customer base. And I think that, again, talks to our sustainability as a business, so long as we manage ourselves effectively. Franklin, you had another question? Yes, Eric, I have a final question. And uh, Vijay, I've noted that the change in operating expense for 2022 and 2021, it is higher than the change in revenue for 2022 compared to 2021. What is the company doing just to minimize those total operating expenses? That's something that's always work in progress. So what we saw the, in 2022 is two things. One is that with the demurrage and storage charges, which some of them went above into other costs, but there were other costs that went into the operating expense line. So that's the number one thing. The second thing that went into the operating expense line was Border Plus. Not that was particularly massive because Border Plus is consolidated. Unlike Watu and unlike the Cummins JV, Border Plus is consolidated in terms of income and expense. So all the expenses for Border Plus were booked last year through our operating expense without the commensurate increase in revenue. So we think that will happen this year. And in terms of demurrage and storage, I think we've already said uh, that we've really looked to become much more efficient. And we think that we'll recover a lot of that cost or reduce a lot of that cost this year. Not entirely. We've got it under control and we should see the revenue growth coming from the organizations that will compensate for that. So I think this year we'll see a reversal, assuming we can be efficient across all sectors of our business. There's a question here from Rahim. Your TVS motorcycle being a major business line in Kenya, do you have like yearly unit target for each year for how much you should sell? Yes, we do have a yearly target. In 2021, we had a target of 5,000 units a month, which we exceeded. In 2022, we, ex we knew it was an election year, so we stuck to the same target. And right now we're struggling below that because of the 50% drop that I mentioned earlier. So yes, we do have targets and they're market share targets. What drives us is not unit targets. Obviously, that drives us from a volume and profit perspective. But ultimately, the key thing for us, whatever happens, we can't lose market share. So the key driver for us is market share. And so long as our market share is going up, even though our unit sales may drop, we're not going to be happy. But the reality is we wouldn't be distressed. If the market went up, our unit sales went up and our market share dropped, we would be distressed. Market share is very critical for us. So we'd like to have both market share growth and unit share growth. But it just depends on the market size. And this year, as I've said, it's dropped. 
Another question here from Willis who's asking about the farm equipment business, not the new government. I think one of their focus areas is agriculture. So are, how are you positioning yourself to benefit maybe from the new government policies? Or are you more government agnostic? No, we're not government agnostic. And what we think the government should do is promote agriculture. Ultimately, we talked about that population growth, one quarter of the world's population, one third of the productive population. Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania need to be much more agricultural productive. There's no question about that. So the reality is we are very pro any government that promotes agriculture. And the reality is, I think some of the banks are coming to the party as well. So the likes of equity are looking at transforming agriculture. And with the government and different institutions, they must look at transforming agriculture. Because agriculture is going to be the breadbasket of the world and certainly the breadbasket of Kenya. And we're very happy with that because then we can play more aggressively in the agricultural space and do what we have to do in terms of supporting agriculture through providing finance for it, making sure farmers get the right quality in the same way we've done for bikes and three-wheelers. Today, we have over a million customers in, my, in bikes and three-wheelers. So the reality is why we can do the same for tractors. We would like to do the same for tractors, but we need to have a market that's big enough to do it. But we definitely see agriculture as being a mainstay of the Kenyan economy, and it has to be promoted. Good for us and good for the government and good for the country if we have a government that's promoting agriculture. One question here from someone called Zul. I say, in terms of creating maybe an enabling business environment, how would that look like from the government's side for maybe your business? So how that would look would be essentially, I think Kenya is quite enabling, but what I'd really like to see is a much more pro-business government. What we're seeing right now is we're seeing a government that's very pro-collection very pro-regulation, very pro-processes, and very pro-making sure that they get the most out of business. But ultimately, I was giving you the example of manufacturing. No one is supporting manufacturing. Manufacturing is left on its own, right? We talked about that just now. We have a pro-agriculture government at the moment. So what we would really like to see more than anything else is a government that's promoting business. Right? And in the absence of that, what we'd like to see is a government that's not hindering business. And that means consistent policies, consistent regulations, consistent tax regime, no harassment, all the rest of that stuff. But really, the former is a much better equation. Having both is the best equation. But we also recognize there are a lot of people play games. The reality is, for us, we want a fair playing field. We want a clean playing field. And the history of Kenya has been people not trading as fairly as they should trade. That's been the history. So, yes, we recognize that you're assumed guilty until proven innocent. But we need to change that mindset. And we need to change business mindset. Business needs to start thinking, we're going to do good, clean business. So the government can start thinking, okay, these are clean businesses. Let's focus our energy on creating more proactive progress. It's a mindset shift that needs to take place both across business and then across government so that we become more and more proactive. Thanks, Vijay. Someone is asking, what are you doing to integrate with startups around your area of the markets? Are you working with startups? Are you investing in startups? So we were always very open to investment. We invested in Watu when it was starting up. We've invested in Arkride when it's starting up. 
We invested in Border Plus when it's starting up. Uh, and so, yes, we like startups. We like startups. We like, and we've been relatively successful so far. And we like the model. In fact, we like the model. We like not having to consolidate everything on our balance sheet, especially for the startup businesses. So the reality is in all our businesses were startups. Our bike business was a startup. Our three-wheeler business was a startup. Our genset business was a startup. These were all startups. So we're very happy to promote startups. And we're very happy to promote young, really bright entrepreneurs who are basically honest and trustworthy and who we can rely on to build a great business. Really happy. We'd love to and have a great smart idea. And there are a lot of smart guys around. Just look around. Really smart guys around right now. Uh, another question here is how does fair competition in terms of VAT and compliance of innovation of taxes affect your business? So right now it's increasingly limited in our business, to be fair, because right now we've got dominant players in our businesses. Most of the dominant players play it pretty straight, to be honest. So there's no question that it does happen. So like, for example, in some of our spare parts businesses, it will happen. Will anyone play around with bikes? The answer is maybe, but very little. Will anyone play around with tuk-tuks? Maybe, but not much. When you look at our other lines, forklifts, gensets, dusan, most of those lines, because they're aiding industry, have minimal tax on them. And most people would want to buy them with VAT, to be honest. So that the option of cash transactions is minimal. So I would say that in Kenya, it's certainly limited. Tanzania, slightly less limited because, again, it goes back to the mindset. But again, changing there as well, particularly on the unit side, not so much on the part side. And when we look at our equipment businesses across the region, as I said, they're relatively tax light. What I noticed that there's a very high interest in terms of discussions around your business and business line. We'll try to host you again sometime soon for another discussion, especially on EV and all that, since that's the future. But generally, since we've done an hour and a half, I think for a single speaker, that's usually a lot. So I would ask you maybe to give us your closing thoughts. First of all, I'd like to thank all of you. And thank you very much, Eric, for hosting this. And I, I, what I really appreciated was the engaging session and the fact that there's a lot of interest. And when we talk about things like these, one thing I will say is that it gives everyone, including myself, a lot more clarity on the way forward. Yeah, so no, I really appreciated that. So thank you very much. In terms of closing thoughts, I think the critical number for me is this one quarter population and one third of the working population. And we need to position ourselves as a country and as businesses to make the most of that. That's where India was 25 years ago. Now, the reality is you can look and see what India has done for itself. Uh, and I think we in Africa have exactly the same opportunity. And Kenya will be at the forefront of that. And East Africa potentially could be at the forefront of that if we can really govern ourselves, number one, and then make it an enabling environment, number two, in order to promote the businesses and the agricultural sector that goes with it. That's a really huge statement. And I don't think we can lose that. We need to really keep on that and promote that at all levels in our businesses and in our stakeholder engagements. Because that's what we need to realize. There's a huge opportunity out there and it's for us to make it or break it. So that's the number one point. And I think from our side, from a business, I think we're engaged in the right spaces. I think we're relatively well positioned. We have fairly dominant market positions. And now for us, it's a question of managing the risks. And I think for all of us in business, I went to a very interesting talk from, by a Warren Buffett disciple. 
He said the macro environment is always a challenge sometimes, but the reality is great businesses control three or four great variables, big variables in their business. And if those variables are properly controlled, you can overcome the macro challenges. And that's really what we've seen in the last year. I'm not saying we manage those three or four variables as well as we should have managed them better, I think. But I think going forward, we'll manage them a lot better, I hope. And if we're able to do that, I think we'll see a lot of growth in the business because of the way it's positioned. So those are my really big closing thoughts, to be honest. One macro, one micro. I'm not sure whether you want me to add any more to that, Eric. Yes. What advice would you give to young entrepreneurs who are looking for places to invest? Okay, so I can talk from our own experience. And our own experience, we've got four or five really key criteria when we're making an investment decision. Number one, we need to be able to be number one or number two. Now, I'm not sure that's always possible. The reality is that's not always possible for everyone. But we need to basically have a competitive edge in the marketplace we're going into. And in our case, we need to be able to see our number one or number two position. Number two is it must be a market that's growing at least 10% per annum. If it's not a growth market, don't invest in it. If it's invest growing at more than 10%, great time to invest. And certain markets are growing at 20%, 30% right now. So it's worth looking at those. So that's number two, that the market must be growing. Number three, it must be a large enough addressable market. We talked about Alfa Romeo earlier on, right? There's no point in investing in a small market where, you know, the volume will never allow you to be profitable. So it must be a large enough addressable market. And number four, you must have control on your cash flow. So you must either be a cash business or you must be a business that can control credit that you're giving. If you look at our balance sheet, our debtors are always relatively stable and relatively under control. We lost control on the stocks, right, last year. And that was basically with some of the logistical issues and some of our own issues. But now if we're able to become logistic champions, I think we'll be able to control that a lot better and run a much more efficient business. But what I'm really saying is cash, be in, in control of the cash flow. So I'd say that those are four things that, that I'd say from a macro scale. From a micro scale, building the right team, the right people is really important. Building the right culture, really important. Working to a very clear strategy, really important. And those are the key things to have a successful business. And the last thing I'd probably say is that, like we're trying to do in our business, is making sure the cultural mindset is right. That is day one mentality. Every day is your first day in a business. And if one can achieve that day one mentality and number one mentality, I think you're going to have a winning business model. So those are some really high level thoughts on what I think we should be looking at in terms of investment, investing in businesses. Thank you, Vijay. That's almost two hours now done in terms of spaces. That's very well done. I think I should read one comment here from Marida who say that you're very articulate and very good as a speaker. So I think that's something you should take home with. No, thank um, you very all. much. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us today. Check out the Mwango memes on Saturday and the Mwango newsletter on Monday as usual.